Large language models like ChatGPT and BARD have guardrails. There's stuff they won't do, things they won't say. Uh, just to make sure this was still the case, I asked uh, ChatGPT, tell me how to defeat my nemesis. And it very politely said, if by defeat your nemesis, you mean overcoming a personal or professional rival or challenge in an ethical and constructive manner, here are some guidelines. To which I clarified, no, like I want to destroy them. ChatGPT barred, they'll all give you some answer like, sorry, I cannot and will not promote or provide guidance on causing harm or engaging in destructive behavior. Guardrails. I feel like there's a weird, like a, it's, in, it's in its own moral and ethical quandary in the fact that it is kind of, mm-hmm. uh, its existence is semi-destructive to lots of people. <laughs> <laughs> they just stop being able to answer any questions. They're like, I'm going to put people out of work, so for that reason I can't engage in any of this. Yeah. I would love to help you write your copy for the review of the Samsung television, but this should just be a Fiverr <laughs> job should. that you paid somebody to do. So uh, here's a link to Fiverr. Take care. I would like to see that GPT model. <laughs> but we're all familiar with this in language models. We're really familiar with it in generative AI in general. There are guardrails against what it will say and what it will help you do. But pretty much the second you're introduced to multiple tools, all with roughly the same boundaries, curiosity invites the question, is there one without those boundaries? For example, one that you could give the prompt, write me a Python malware that grabs a computer's username, external IP address, and Google Chrome cookies, zips everything up, and sends it to a Discord webhook that would get a result. ChatGPT barred, they obviously won't do that, but one could. Brief detour, Hacked has a Discord, and two buds there, Zero and Ratsec, shared these two different stories back-to-back in the Story Ideas channel about two products named, accurately, Fraud GPT and Worm GPT. And you're really getting what's on the box with these things. They're large language models that'll let you do computer crimes. That Python malware prompt I said earlier, that's from WormGPT. It's the example when you go to the site. So let's take a look at a couple stories this episode, but we'll start there with the ever-evolving landscape of sketchy large language models on this episode of Hacked. How you doing, Scott? I am tired, Jordan. How are you? I am wide awake. (laughs) I I have this problem where I am exhausted from a long weekend of playing in the smoky sun because there are forest fires everywhere, so there's bad air quality. Yep. And the coffee that I have in my espresso machine is tragically awful to the point that I won't even drink it. So I am uncaffeinated and exhausted. I don't know if you know this, but that would make this the first caffeine-free podcast. Wow. Not of our show, but full stop. (laughs) I think there's 3 million podcasts in the world. That that, This is the first one. This is definitely the first one of ours. Make a new ground. (laughs) Like, there's no chance I'm literally holding a cup of coffee at this moment. Any, are you? (laughs) Jesus. Yeah. 
Envious. Envious. It's not good coffee. Rubbing it in my face at this point. I can't stress how bad this coffee is, but I, it's volume is what I go for. I, I make like an iced coffee craft the size of your head, and it's just it crushed through that in two days. It's not good. It's not good behavior. But you know what is good behavior? Oh, tell me more. Uh, supporting tech storytelling and news at hackedpodcast.com. Oh, that is that is great behavior. That's that fantastic is love behavior. behavior. That is really appre- yeah, deeply that- appreciated behavior. <laughs> And and people like Juan Pablo Gomez Postigo, I'm hoping I got that right. I, I if I didn't, you, I apologize. I think you did. Great behavior. You we really we really Great appreciate behavior. that. Uh, Kayla Cotton, mm-hmm, it means mm-hmm. the world to us. Thank you so much. Tane, Tane. also amazing behavior. Tane, nothing Tane. but Tane. Uh, and then finally, Ross McAdamney. Uh, thank you so much to all our new supporters on Patreon since the last episode. Your support means the world to us. You know, uh, if you like stories and news and conversations about tech and how people use it and all the strange things they get up to with it, uh, you should join those great people. Hackedpodcast.com redirects to our Patreon. Uh, that's how you can jump into the Discord where we got a bunch of the stories for this episode. But it's also just a great way to support the show help us make more stuff, have more interesting conversations, do deeper dives. Totally. So again, if you want to support the show, hackedpodcast.com. Boopy doop boop boop. I'm just going to start leaving the boopy doop boop boops in here because for years I've been removing both of us doing weird little musical fills as transitions and adding in like musical fills as transitions. And I'm just, you know, mowing over the same spot twice for no reason. (laughs) <laughs> That's true. We could just actually get complicated, you know, transitions that we make, like maybe some small musical instruments that we play with our mouth. Oh, and, sure. You know, just, do it on mic. Yeah. Like a harmonica. <laughs> and just do it do it live. Just do it yeah, live. Just do it live. Just shakers and gongs and stuff. Little I think that's harp. fun. It's yeah. very old school. I feel like in like the '60s on NBC, there'd be a, just a dude sitting next to a gong and a xylophone every time they needed to transition. Well, remember, it was his job to go ding, ding, ding. Remember when we had the little mouth harp in the office? And uh, I, I, oh, that thing! I got I got pretty good with it. I'm not gonna lie. We could. You, I say this affectionately, could not handle the responsibility <laughs> of having that mouth harp. That was there was a good two calendar years that just. <laughs> firing at all times just outside of uh, my field of view. And I think that's also when hoverboards were really popping uh, off. So yeah. it was like mobile. It was this like this mouth harp ripping back and forth around me. It's good times. Yeah, we have good times. we have a playful office. Let's just say that. We have a playful office. <laughs> uh, so where do we want to go with the worm and the fraud and the GPTs? With the worm and the fraud. Let's talk about worm GPT and fraud GPT. Let's just talk about. I just can we just start one level up. I just want to talk about because mm-hmm. I'm assuming, and maybe this mm-hmm. is my assumption that these people don't actually have their own large language models. That they've just figured out a mm. way to get around the bumpers on the the real ones. Maybe I'm incorrect in that. Sure, but um, so there, there's a lot of different products being discussed here. And as we will discuss, I think they're products of varying degrees of uh, being real. But generally speaking, I think a lot of them work on open source language models. Yeah. So there, there's a couple different models that are just available for anyone to use. 
Uh, and the question is how much data you then have to train it on. The model is one thing, the training set is another. Is my layman's understanding of this whole thing. I know Worm GPT uses the GPT mm-hmm. J model. Yep. But they actually trained it using Chat GPT, which just tells me like like that's just an interesting like you're using another model to train a model, but then they've been layering in their own data and, and stuff on top of it. Yeah. So it's like almost like they're to me it it just reads like we've wrapped chat GPT and we know the prompts to get it to make things that it shouldn't. That's at least how I feel about it. Sure. But I'm not sure if that's true. I think there's probably ones that work that way, where you're basically just getting a, a mm-hmm. chat GPT wrapper. But let's start kind of where you have with Worm GPT. A bunch of places have covered this, but Krebs on security, the OG, did I think the best job, and he broke the identity of at least one of the devs. So depending on when you first learned about it, Worm GPT was either a no guardrails GPT tool explicitly for black hat, black hat hacking, or if you learned about it later, it would present itself as you know a privacy focused, slightly more uncensored GPT alternative. There's been a bit of a rebranding, which we'll talk about. Even though, even though, even though, on the front page of their site, the little image that pops up is <laughs> "Write me a phishing email," and bang, it responds with a phishing email. So it's like, you know, yeah. they know they know who their market yeah. is. You know, I didn't say it was a good ruse. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the story seems to start with a post from a user called Last. Uh, on a platform called Hackforms, advertising this new product, retailing for, for between 500 and 5,000 euros, introducing my newest creation, Worm GPT. Quote, this project aims to provide an alternative to ChatGPT, one that lets you do all sorts of illegal stuff and easily sell it online in the future. Everything Black Hat related you can think of can be done with Worm GPT, allowing anyone access to malicious activity without ever leaving the comfort of their home. Uh, Again, all sorts of illegal stuff is pretty important language there. Mm. So some security researchers try it, and you can definitely write a very boilerplate phishing email with it. It will do that. That guardrail does not exist. That account, last, traces back to an older username, to another older username, which had been used on Instagram, connected to a guy in Portugal named Rafael Moraes. He says he's open about his involvement in the project and says he's one of several people working on it. Graduated from a polytechnic institute in Portugal, says he's about like a third of the team. Roughly 200 people have like purchased the service to date, according to Moraes. And he emphasizes that his primary motivation isn't financial, but uh, to serve the community. Mm-hmm. Quoting from that Krebs article, I don't do this for money. It was basically a project I thought was interesting. And now I'm maintaining it to help the community. Interesting. His the whole presentation of it, like when he makes the initial forum post mm-hmm. about it, like just even the, yeah. the use of the word illegal to me is just like, yep. I just want to say it's yeah. I don't know what the right term is. It's not immature, but I would say it's it's unrefined. Like normally you would say, yeah, you can do all sorts of stuff that are previously disallowed on other models. Totally. You don't just explicitly come out yeah. and be like, yo, we're here to break the law. Yeah, like when you can see him get to that conclusion. In the wrong order. Mm-hmm. So there's this product. It can you you buy the license through Telegram, but the media picks up the story. I think in part because of that sort of inflammatory language that you identified. You know, it's self-identifying as a black hat tool for illegal activity. Yeah. So it gets a ton of attention, 
And all of those stories, they do two different things. The first is they respectfully, uh, they really hype up what you can do with these things. Because I think there's a sense of, uh, we've all seen how powerful ChatGPT is. Imagine what a, an evil version of it could do. And that the stories kind of really sell how powerful this tool is. When really it's, it sure can write a very serviceable phishing scam email. Great. Um, so th they're doing that as the new tool for hackers, but they're also, you know, shining a lot of light on an operation that is professing to be illegal. That is claiming to be a tool to empower people to do crimes, and you really get the sense that the people behind this tool get some cold feet, because this is where we start to see a bit more of the rebrand, um, certainly in how he's talking about it to journalists and on some of the forums. Mm -hmm. Really negotiating how uncensored they're saying this thing is, what they're saying you can do with this. Um, quoting again from that Krebs article, we are uncensored, not black hat. From the beginning, the media has portrayed us as a malicious large language model when all we did was use the term black hat GPT for our Telegram channel name as a meme. We encourage researchers to test our tool and provide feedback to determine if it is as bad as the media is portraying it to the world. And really, I think as with any project that starts with the removal of those guardrails, they're now in the process of slowly adding them back in. Because, like, say you remove the guardrails to allow people to write phishing emails or write some malicious code. You still probably have a bunch of other guardrails that you want to leave in. Because even in that kind of black hat cybercrime community, there's still a ton of stuff that, to their credit, they will not tolerate. Quote, we have prohibited some subjects on Worm GPT itself. Anything related to murders, drug trafficking, kidnapping, uh, child abuse, ransomwares, financial crimes. We're working on blocking business email <clears throat> compromise too. Uh, our plan is to have Worm GPT marked as an uncensored AI, not black hat. The easiest way to get around this is you just say that you're making a research tool. <laughs> totally. It's like you, be, you just like, no, we wanted to take the bumpers off because we wanted to incentivize research. Also, like we're doing cybersecurity research. Yeah. Trying to see if these models can truly become compromising threats. Yeah. And then boom, all boom. of a sudden you're a pro academic researcher. Yeah. And not somebody who's like, we're going to do a bunch of illegal things and give us money to help you do illegal things. And it's like, well, now you're, now you're an enemy of most people. So. Yeah, you could do that by being the people that developed the open source GPT-6B uh, or whatever it's called that this thing is probably built on top of. Like That is an open source research project uh -huh. um, to empower people to make their own training models. That's, that's kind of what you're describing. Uh -huh. But the second you say, we're going to make our own version of that, dump a bunch of you know, stuff that we scraped off the internet into the training set and monetize it. Yeah. You, you, you've, you've crossed some kind of a Delta because really why would anyone pay for it unless it can do something that the other ones explicitly can't. And the only things the other ones explicitly can't do are crimes. Uh -huh. WormGBT seems to be stuck between trying to court black hat users and trying to appear publicly as this like privacy centric GPT alternative. Meanwhile, that user from the very beginning, last, is still posting on places like hack forums and more intense like cybercrime forums like Exploit, saying that the product, uh, with the product, you can quote easily buy WormGPT and ask ask it for a Rust malware script that he says will work against most antiviruses. So, kind of talking out of both sides of the mouth a little bit on this one. I don't know if you saw it, but uh, Python is coming to Microsoft Office. Mm. So they're putting they're putting Python in Excel, which should be very exciting. 
Interesting. <laughs> as a as a in, in a vector of attack. Sure. Now you have uh, you're taking out the old like kind of visual basic style code and stuff that the the macros are written and you're actually introducing Python. Interesting. Which these tools are good at writing now, so should be should be exciting times as as Excel figures out the bumpers to put on mm. the macros and stuff and and whether they can be bypassed. So yeah, I think it's going to be in the same way that the last decade was a really important time for the like bumpers of content moderation on social media. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to spend a good decade watching people figure out the like guardrails around prompting around we'll, AIs. We won't let these things do exactly. Yeah. Uh, maybe we'll wrap on G- on Worm GPT before moving on to Fraud GPT here. And Krebs asked a very important question that I hadn't really thought of, which is, oh, what are some white hat uses for Worm GPT? To which Morris replied, you know, you can use it to fix issues on your website related to possible SQL problems and exploits. You can use Worm GPT to create firewalls, manage IP tables, analyze network code blockers, do math, anything. And it is worth noting that if that is the art, like that is the product that this is sort of publicly claiming to be. That the guardrails on much more advanced tools like ChatGPT and Bard do both of those things just fine. Mm-hmm. They will help you do security programming to the best of their ability. Um, worm GPT's niche either is or isn't the wormy stuff, the the underground kind of things. And I'm really curious to see how they tr- sort of try to navigate that rebrand. Yeah, I feel I feel like you just take it down, put it back up instantly as a cybersecurity research tool and move on with your life. Exactly. You know, every everybody yeah. likes to push the limits of tech and everybody likes to do research. Totally. You know, discover things they can't discover and, you know, I don't know. To, to me, that was just a branding error. Well, if we're calling it Worm GPT was a branding error, let's talk about fraud GPT. <laughs> so Wired did a big piece on this and I think we can spend a little less time on it, but Really, the big idea that this story brings up, and it's not making necessarily a claim about fraud GPT, but it really is evoking the idea that one of scammers' favorite targets are other scammers. And that uh, download something to access this flashy new AI scamming tool is pretty great bait for scamming scammers. It seems to be a running trend in, in our topics these days, the scamming of scammers. It really does, doesn't it? Scamming the scammers. It's uh, as odd as targets go. They seem to be a pretty good one. So, uh, security researcher Rakesh Krishnan over at Netenrich um, sort of seemed to discover this product. It's being sold on various dark web forums and Telegram for two hundred bucks a month or seventeen hundred dollars a year. And there's uncertain evidence on this one of any actual buyers or users, even as it's been getting a lot of uh, media coverage. Um, Sergey Shikevich over at Checkpoint kind of made a distinction between Worm GPT and Fraud GPT, which is why I wanted to talk about them both. Worm GPT is an actual tool that you can use, and he is quite skeptical about Fraud GPT. Um, <laughs> he actually just thinks it's a fraud. He thinks it might actually just be a fraud. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but uh, I can understand why someone would f- create a fraudulent version of one of these tools to try and scam people that want a fraudulent version of one of these tools. And I feel like they've just come straight up and given it the proper name if that's actually the case. If it is just a scam, you know, calling it fraud GBT, you could be like, well, you know, we, we called it a fraud. Like, you know, this is kind of buyer beware. Yeah. This is on you. Totally. And kind of looking into fraud GBT, mm-hmm. it seems like there's not a ton of... There's a lot of discussion about it, but there's no it's like it's not as public yeah. as Worm GPT, so you really have no idea. Yeah. 
you need to almost find somebody who spent the money on it to figure out what it's capable mm. of and what it is, or what you know, or spend the money you know yourself, which I won't do, given the branding name of it. Precisely, <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, you know you have really no idea what it is capable of. Maybe it's even better, you know. Like I've seen seen some of the examples and stuff of of people like making fishing mm-hmm. websites using it and stuff like that, but. You know that also seems like something you could pretty quickly do with totally view source and chat GPT. So what fraud GPT really suggests to me is a future where you know we go back to worm GPT's guardrails, the one that they're saying they are batting back in. It won't help you do a murder or traffic drugs or kidnap or abuse Mm -hmm. those kind of things that are outside the scope of cybersecurity is going to be the very strange world of people creating fake AI tools to help people do some of the worst things people can do to target the people trying to do it. It reminds me of the, uh, are there any actual uh, Darknet hitmen episode? That we yeah, did, yeah, right. Where it's like, there aren't really hitmen on the dark web, but there's a lot of people scamming people who want to hire hitmen on the dark web. And I think that that's probably going to be where this goes in the long term. There will probably eventually become some like, Amalgamation and one of these things will emerge as the actual actual successful blackout one, and law enforcement will inevitably go after it. But there will be a great number more scam versions of GPTs and AI tools that don't really do what they do or do a pretty bad job, but are really more about targeting the people that want to use those tools. Yes, yeah, I agree with you. I think the other thing too is that I think the yeah, it's hard to justify that you've spent $1,700 on something called fraud GBT when you contact PayPal and say, hey, <laughs> can I reverse this transaction? You know, same kind of thing as the Hitman thing. Hey. You wire, wire totally. somebody $20,000 and then you call, the, <laughs> call your credit card company and be like, well, I was actually paying for an assassination that didn't happen, so I'd like my money back. Hey, it says here you want your money back for a purchase of something called Murder GBT. <laughs> uh, What's that about? And you're like, oh, it's really what was on the box. I was just looking for advice to do a murder. Jeez, yeah, that's definitely going to be a thing. It, I, there's, there's a, I, like, I wish, I wish, I wish I knew fraud GPT. I wish I knew if it was actually just a fraud, if it was a scam. Because I, I gotta say, if it is, I, I respect the branding. <laughs> That they just came out straight. That's true. And they're true. just like, nope, this is a fraud. Yeah. Send us money and we'll give you access to this tool. Just kidding. You got conned. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's GPT for doing fraud? They're like, we did not say that. We said it is a fraud GPT. <laughs> I don't know how you're angry at us. Thanks for the big <laughs> You've been scammed. Good day. The whole GPT AI world, like I know it's just kind of blown up. Like if you watch any investment news, like it's the number one trigger mm-hmm. for what's going on. Like NVIDIA's stock popped sure. like the you know boomed as yeah. the just hockey stick oh, last as week. the bitcoin craze hit and died and all of a sudden yeah. mining was no more everybody was like oh my god nvidia's totally. shares are gonna die and then they like quartered and then boom all of a sudden it's like ai is powered by nvidia chipsets and then it's bang it's straight back up I know Microsoft's, totally. the, yeah. Microsoft's working on an AI-powered assistant, like a proper large language model assistant that integrates across their office suite as well as the Azure mm-hmm. platform. So it's like, yeah, AI is, AI is here. We are in, the, we are in the, the moment, and it's going to be interesting to see if it becomes you know, three, 3D TV or whether it's going to become you know, sure. something else. So it'll be, it'll be, I don't know, I'm excited by it. I think it's going to be cool. 
you know, especially if they start developing it into yeah. business. You know, like we can look at the we've talked about this before, but like when you look at you know productivity from a unit of labor as we go back into economics, as I often do. Sorry, people. Sure. Um, the <laughs> the productivity constantly. You know, computers make us more productive. All of a sudden, we have networking. All of a sudden, we have you know this. We have cell phones. We have you know microcomputers we carry with us, and it just makes us more and more and more effective per unit of human labor. And I feel like. With gross adoption of these kind of things, like when I open Google, get an email, and hit reply, and it's pre-drafted me a response based on the content sure. of the email that I got, like that's a product, like a productivity enhancer. Maybe I have to edit it, mm-hmm. but it's still a lot better than if I had to write it myself. Yeah, and it's like I just feel like we're we're going that way, so it's going to be exciting times. Yeah, twelve months ago, an email that you might have had to tweak still would have had to have been generated by like a person in your employment. Yeah. So there's really no pretending we haven't crossed some kind of a line. Yeah. Um, even if we are in that kind of like trough of disillusionment of what they can do, that oh my gosh, eight months in they haven't replaced everyone. Uh, it was all made up. It's like no, we're we're at the beginning of a very 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 long tail with these things. We've been using kind of AI and statistical modeling and stuff like that for. Spam prevention for decades now, yeah. And I feel like we're we're getting to that point where we're going to start to see these models. You know, we might actually be able to use email again soon. You know, we'll have cybersecurity AIs that, mm. yeah, that, sure. You know, yeah, and they, they might also any links in an email they'll open in a sandbox, uh, do a full you know sweep of the code on the other side. Like they'll get the source of the website, sweep it. Verify all those links are valid. And there's nothing malicious about it, and then allow us to open those links, or else they'll just remove them or remove the email entirely. Or sure. So, so I think that I think the counterside of things writing crappy phishing mm-hmm. emails is that we might get some AIs phishing that emails? that do some sure. good for us and stop us from being fished. I wouldn't be mad about that. No, I think we're going to need to not to get ahead of ourselves. But I recently heard the term. Uh, and I'd probably heard it before at some point in my life, but I really clocked it the other day. It was I heard the term chip wars the other day. It's like that's a that's a fun new expression I'd never really thought about before. And I think at some point on the show we're gonna have to do a deep dive into like the ecosystem of you brought up NVIDIA, but like chips and semiconductors. Yeah. Because as we move into this like AI gold rush era, those are the pickaxes. Wow. And they're this like physically produced commodity. That is deeply political, deeply geographical, um, and is probably going to be the like focal point of some like very serious conflict over the coming years and decades. And I want to understand it more. Well, do we want to just tack that onto this chatty chat episode? We can have a brief chat about it because I've been following it. I'm very intrigued. Well, why don't we uh, why don't we kick it over <laughs> to commercial? And when we come back, we'll we'll talk poker, we'll talk credit checks, and we'll talk chips. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. All you want is to meet your security and compliance requirements, but your business technology keeps changing. Cyber threats emerge every day. More regulations apply to you now than ever before, and your IT resources remain limited. The Center for Internet Security can help. At CIS, we work to create a safer world for people, businesses, and governments through collaboration and innovation. Using a community-driven consensus process, we work with IT professionals and volunteers around the world to develop and maintain security best practices. These resources save you time, money, and effort wherever you are on your cybersecurity journey. We also work with U.S. state, local, tribal, and territorial government organizations to share information with one another so they're stronger together. Join us today in creating confidence in the connected world. Visit cisecurity.org to play your part. Aside from just the AI, you know, war and the pickaxes, as you were mentioning in the in the in the caves and mines of artificial intelligence, you know, chips are chips are <laughs> in COVID. Obviously, you know, there was massive logistical headaches and issues. So, like the fact that vehicle prices went crazy and you couldn't get vehicles and used cars were selling for so much. Mm-hmm. You know, you had entire auto dealer lots full of pickup trucks that. Mm. You couldn't. You could buy, but you couldn't take because they were still waiting for some of the primary chips to go in them. So it's like it's not even just in the AI battle. Right. It's in everything now. Like there's chips in. Totally. I have forty devices on my desk, and each one of them has probably yeah, every single one ten chips in them, different types of chips. So yeah, I think I think the I think that COVID shined a spotlight on the fact that wow. Yeah, these are actually very important now to not only yes. daily life and productivity, but national security and the economy. So all of a sudden, they became a yes. a point of political politicization around them. Is oh my god! So America has been incentivizing uh, companies creating essentially semiconductor chip factories in the states. Mm-hmm. So I know Texas is getting a bunch of of new development in that regard, new companies opening and moving, and and kind of quote unquote stateside uh, uh, development of chips and and you know manufacturing of yeah. them. So it's it's a huge deal. Yeah the uh, the question that got me onto it, and this is maybe spoiling some of the early writing I've done for that uh, little chipped series I want to do. Oh no, 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 <laughs> no, no! In a good way. Like let's talk about it because I, I, I find it interesting. Was so. It's like once you accept the premise that these, these semiconductors are going to absolutely everything, you kind of also then have the thought of like, well, that means there's a great number of them. So like there's so, so many of them. What would it mean if we were producing less? What would it mean if they were, they were the heart of a trade war? And the thing that I bumped into that I didn't really appreciate is that chips have a life cycle. Mm-hmm. And that felt like kind of a light, like a light bulb going off for me. It's like they get older and they eventually die. The thing that empowers pretty much every piece of technology, every tool you use on a day-to-day basis has 
a life cycle. There's like really interesting science of why that happens. Electrons getting caught in these little loops that can just sort of like slowly degrade inside of a semiconductor. Mm-hmm. It's a bit above my head. But once you accept the pro- like the premise that this isn't just a product, it's a disposable product. It is, it is a product you have to be constantly making new ones of because on a pretty short timeline historically, the ones we have will eventually burn out. Yes. Um, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but like eventually they're not going to work anymore. So you do, even if you stop making them better, you still have to keep making more. And some of the biggest um, factories and centers of production for these are in some of the most like politically contentious regions on <laughs> earth. And we sort of just like walked backwards into that problem yes. that we're now trying desperately to work our way back out of. Yes, They're going to be the commodity we fight over, I think, over the next over the coming decades, yeah, that's that's where this might go. <laughs> here's the here's the thing for me is that I'm I'm less I'm less in that camp. Oh yeah, I think that there's a five year window here where people have realized how important they are. Sure, the manufacturing of of chips and integrated circuits and stuff like that. And yes, they do have a typically have a lifetime. Like you're a synthesizer guy, and I yes. know there's there's ICs and stuff and that can go in since chips that break and they'll literally just crack sometimes yeah. and then you have to unsolder. Yeah, I think you're a Game Boy guy too, aren't you? So to like change the <laughs> chips on boards. Yep. Anyway, the 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 thing for me is like I'm not like they're not like lithium. No. Like I'm more worried about finite commodities. The manufacturing and creation of basic chips is pretty I don't want to say it's easy, but it's it's a solved it's problem. Well well yeah. known at this point. Yes. Um, you know, there's always innovations of it. You know, sure. we're talking like I think Nvidia is down to like five uh, ridiculous shit. Yeah, fi- yeah, like like super fine, yeah. uh, which also probably just shortens their lifespan. Like I have one of AMD's new chipsets, and I know that if you can get any extra heat on it, like if it's not cooled excessively perfect, sure. it will actually just destroy itself. So the anyway, that's a roundabout way of saying. I'm not too worried about it. I think that I think that people realize how important they are to day-to-day life and given the political uncertainty in the world for economic health, state health, security health, national security health, you need to make sure that you have them. Mm-hmm. Like I don't feel like there's like a vault of them that we're going to go to war for like oil because mm. that is a finite commodity. Mm. It's like chips are like we can make our own. Sure, silica silica is plentiful. We just pe- just pe- people just need to make them, and that's what you're seeing in America right now, where they're just like, okay, this is a problem. You know, here's X billion dollars, and we're going to incentivize the development of mm. this industry because we see this as being a potential future problem if we have a massive, contentious trade war with China. Sure. Like Americans still need vehicles and they still need computers and et cetera, et cetera. I certainly, I, I hope that's true, obviously. Um, I definitely <laughs> hope that that's true. I'm always impressed by the ways that countries and powered interests find to like mess with each other the second they have control of like an important commodity. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, and I'm just sort of, it's really dawning on me how important this commodity is. So I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping everyone's chill about it. <laughs> I, the, <laughs> the, the thing for me is I more, I more hope that the humans that are in charge of making it less 
making it more chill, i.e. the bureaucrats that are yes. you know, in Washington and, and other countries looking to create new industries for it, don't sure. mess it up because humans are the yes, biggest I agree. fault in this. So it's like, I know that we can oh, do it. I'm not too super worried yes, about it. I agreed. It's yeah. just whether they drop the bag, you know? Yeah, because it's a big bag. Yeah. Yeah. You want to talk about poker? Yeah, I love poker. Should we just play poker? Should we have like a just patron just... poker night? Ooh. Ooh, that's fun. $5 buy-in? Who's in? Jump in the Discord. If you're into a, yeah, into, totally. a, into a patron patron poker game, I'm super keen. That's pretty fun. Yeah. It wouldn't work well in an audio platform, but we sure could do a video stream. Yeah, we just do a just do a like an online tournament. That'd be fun. Anyway, digressions aside. So last September at Los Angeles' Hustler Live Casino, there was this big like kerfuffle in the world of professional poker. And to skim off a lot of details, a relatively novice player called a very improbable bluff of a veteran player. They made a call, wild odds, really bad odds for this shot they made, but they win the hand. And immediately everyone says, this is cheating, to the point that there is like a, a full-on investigation of this, this hand of poker, basically. Yeah. And the investigation comes back clean. But in the post-mortem, the uh, event investigators make this claim, basically saying if any cheating had happened, which it didn't, it wasn't anything hardware related. It would have been something social, uh, a player collaborating with someone on the inside, which they had used the cameras and they disproven. But they were very adamant that uh, it wasn't a hardware compromise. Why? Because the deckmate shuffling machine is secure and cannot be compromised. That was the claim. Deckmate anyone that doesn't know is the most commonly used shuffling machine uh, in the world and this event makes this claim it is secure it cannot be tampered with and some guys at a security research firm took that claim personally <laughs> recently the black hat security conference was held in las vegas and at that event uh, security researchers tartaro nasim and shackleford from io active unveiled their findings on the deckmate this very prevalent automated card shuffling machine what they found is that the Deckmate 2, the sort of most up-to-date, latest version of this product, does have a vulnerability. If a device is plugged into the exposed USB port on the Deckmate 2, typically it's like on the underside of the table sometimes, the machine's code can be tampered with. They were able to do this in a lab setting, allowing full control over the shuffler. Deckmate 2 features an internal camera that verifies the presence of all of the cards in the system. Intruders were able to access this camera to determine the deck sequence in real time and transmit that data via Bluetooth to a nearby device. Uh, and they emphasized that they, this technique granted them pretty much total control over the shuffler, enabling them to protect every other player's hand. Read a little bit more about it. The hacking method can be applied to pretty much any card game, but it is super useful in Texas Hold'em Poker, which I think was their case study based on the story that sparked all this. Mm -hmm. uh, in Texas Hold'em, as you know, discerning the deck sequence allows for the prediction of each player's hand, really regardless of their actual choices in the game. Even if the deck is cut by a dealer, a cheating player can deduce the card sequence as soon as the initial three flop cards are shown. Do you play poker? I do play a little bit of poker. Not a ton, but a but you, bit. But you have played poker? I'm familiar with the basics. The, the, it's not really important that 
to the story. The thing that I find most interesting about the story is that like mm-hmm. you should never claim that something's unhackable. That's literally just telling right, right. a massive group of highly skilled, curious yes. puzzle solvers that there's a puzzle yes. over here that they need to solve and you're always gonna end up on the losing side of that usually. Exactly. Yes. The Yeah. Yeah, I don't uh Obviously, like their like when you read about their kind of hack and their implementation and stuff, pretty sophisticated. The other thing you can't overlook is sure. that the like in the initial incident, mm-hmm. like there's a lot of like if you've ever watched poker or been in any bar where there's this poker randomly <laughs> on TV, which is the a lot of bars. There's obviously micro cameras in the cloth or like along the edge of the table, right? Because they see the or from the bottom looking up, so that the yep. production people can see the see the cards so that they know what you have, and then they throw it into the computer and it calculates all the odds, and you see all that stuff in real time. Mm-hmm. So it's like the, there's more technology here than just the deck mate. Definitely. So to say that it couldn't, you couldn't be hacked, and there's no problems there. Because the deck mate's unhackable. It's like, well, there's so many other things mm. going on at a televised poker table Certainly. and so many people that that's a wild, wild claim to say that it's well, the deck shuffler is fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, what about the other thirty eight fail points? Exactly. So the manufacturers of the deckmate did respond to this demonstration saying there is no proof that one of these devices has ever been compromised in this way in a casino. The obvious response to that is that if there had been and it was successful, we sure wouldn't know about it. But what's interesting to me about this is if the idea is that, yes, this USB, if you were to plug into it, is vulnerable, but there are so many other security infrastructure elements surrounding these machines when they're actually being used that actually realizing that compromise is impossible, if that's the argument... What you're really arguing is that, yes, we are selling a vulnerable product, but its use is invulnerable for reasons that have nothing to do with us. Yeah, Casinos are invulnerable, but our device is, is a very strange argument to me. There is a bunch of regulations surrounding this, like hashing functions are like regulated at a state level. It's like they've gotten, the regulations have gotten quite into the technical weeds yeah. when it comes to gambling tech, I guess. But... IOActive argues that like this is the tip of the iceberg. There are pretty deep security issues in a lot of the stuff being used inside of casinos. Yeah. Currently today. Any of those pieces of hardware. Yeah. Like how do you make something tamper proof? You know, we've been we've spent Well, here's the wild thing. The Deckmate one didn't have a USB drive. Like yeah. the first version of this product didn't have a port. <laughs> they still found a way to compromise it, but they had to hack it open. Yeah. It's like, well, that's that's better. <laughs> Maybe don't put a hole in it. Because the the other thing too is like casinos don't really care about poker. And like they care about it in the sense that people play it and they make money from it, but they don't care about the outcome. Interesting. VLTs and, and such, they care right. far more about. Sure. But it's like if one yeah. person on the table loses $1,000 to another person on the table, they still get the rake. And it's like yeah, no, they're, they're good. good. They're fine. And they know that that, that person's going to then walk over to whatever blackjack and lose it on blackjack or take it to you know, <laughs> one of the other games. And and it just it is what it is. Like the house wins. Like that's why yeah. you never hear of casinos going bankrupt. It's it's so to me it's like if you can make these devices and make them secure, the house has no motive to cheat. They don't care. 
Unless something like LA's Hustler Live Casino, like if you've ever seen it on YouTube, pretty popular poker channel. Okay. Is they they might have a bit of bias in it because there are regulars and there's personalities that play in it. Mm. You often see like um Somebody sent me a clip from it the other day. One of my group chats came through, and it was one of the players was the founder of DoorDash. Like there, there's huh. quite frequently like relative, like nerdy celebrities that will go through and play. Okay, so it's like they, I could see them having a bit more motive to, like, but I, I wouldn't see them wanting to tamper with it. Like the the house really doesn't win in that case. Sure. The re, the reality is too is that just. Poker is a game of insane luck. Like I played a lot of poker a few weekends ago and I got beat all in <laughs> by a guy who hadn't looked at his cards. Sick. <laughs> I'm not glad you lost, but that's pretty metal. <laughs> it was so the oh. I had an ace 10. Okay. And he and they didn't even look at their cards. I went in like whatever. Went in something, something else. It was just the two of us left. Still hadn't looked at his cards. The flop came, and it was an ace queen ten. So I had two high, yeah, two pairs, two pair. like like highs, and I had like the nuts pair, like I had the aces. Yeah. So I was like, I'm all in. Sure, he calls in. it. <laughs> Next two card doesn't still doesn't flip his cards because he hasn't looked at him yet. I flip mine, so I've got the ace ten. It's like a six and a two rainbow. Sure. Like there's no flush potentials, no anything, and. He rolls his cards, and the first one's a queen, so he's got a pair of queens, but I've still got the ace sure. pairs. And he yeah. rolls the second one, and it's another queen. So he had three uh. of a kind queens. <laughs> blind. The only like <laughs> realistic hand that could have beat me, Sick. he had blind. So it's oh. like you can't just look at one person no. calling a bluff and sure. be like, and be like, there's cheating happening. Anyway, I'm just, that was a long way for me to advance some frustration. Yeah, you, you, you just needed games. to get that out. And I get why, because <laughs> that's infuriating. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, that's so, so there, there's a lot of luck in it. So, you know, especially with players that aren't super skilled, like when skilled players look at bad plays by bad players, they think that there might be maliciousness in it, but really they're just probably not that good. <laughs> There's a lot of luck in it, and I'm, I personally, as a as a not, I enjoy a game of poker, but I'm not a big gambler. Um, yeah, I want the the gambling tech industry to keep making large claims about how locked down their shit is. Totally, just to keep inviting the ire of security researchers. If that's where all this goes, is just people releasing new, purportedly unhackable pieces of like gambling tech, and then people just hacking the crap out of them. Yeah. Um, and we just go back and forth with that. I'm, I'll watch that show all day. That sounds awesome. <laughs> well, there's, there's also another fascinating <laughs> side to this in the sense that like gambling is such a tax generator, right? Like everywhere that there is gambling, there are massive amounts of tax being collected on it. Like casinos yeah, pay. bad odds are profitable. Yes. So like not only are casinos like yep. great businesses, but they're generally large contributors to our social systems. So it's it's this interesting give and take, and so the sure. I'm pretty sure that in most jurisdictions, like tampering with gambling machines is like a massive, massive crime hmm. because it's like you shouldn't be trying to rig the odds. So sure. So like all of the people, That's not your job. yeah. But so like all of the people, like whenever people think about hacking casinos, they think about the patron hacking the casino for profit, mm -hmm. not the casino hacking 
the casino for question mark, oh, maybe profit, saying. maybe. <laughs> so this, this, this kind of rings, and this is just because I've been playing a decent amount of chess lately too. This, this brings me to the, to the chess cheating scam. Yep. Same kind of vibe. Yes, it does. The, uh, yep. Yeah. As, as well. So, yeah. so the, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, that that yeah, was so an the interesting story. Magnus Carlsen accused uh, mm-hmm. Hans Hans Neiman in a in a yeah. live game. Like we're not talking about like I don't know. Like it was. I'm pretty sure it was in a. I think it was a live game, wasn't it? Yeah. Anyway, there was there was rumors that he because his moves were so unpredictably good, and there's like there's entire chess AI now that rate your moves. And he was making the best logistical, like probabilistic quality move every time, yeah, or something like that. So they they essentially accused him of cheating. Yeah, it was that they were. It was the like intersection of weirdness and effectiveness. It's like they were unintuitive moves that were really exactly. really effective in a way that sort of read to players as like this feels yes. robot-y. It doesn't feel in keeping with the way this guy has played for a while. We have a big data set on how he plays. This seems out of keeping. With that, and he's really, really crushing so they, it. They just settled, um, just settled this like, lawsuit. But yeah. the, there was entire rumors, really, like there was conspiracies about like, oh yeah, vibrating, you know, um, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, anal beads. I guess there's no other way to say. Yeah, we, we can just say it. Yeah, talking about a chess bot plug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, like, like something I followed that, the story. Morse, Morse codes you the move. Yeah. And it was just, even just like a simple like don't make that move like yeah yeah the, even a little bit of feedback could be immensely useful for a person at playing at that level of chess. Anyway, so so rigging poker card shufflers kind of kind of rings this into my head for no reason. Now we're just on a tired, exhausted podcast creating. You know, side trip. <laughs> so, but but a fascinating story nonetheless. Let's wrap it up by talking about the most interesting, exciting, provocative topic of all: Ooh. credit bureaus. Yes. I, do you know something I learned recently? Before we even get going, I just want to jump in here. Hit me. Canadian Hit me. credit scores are out of nine hundred, and apparently American yes. credit scores are out of eight fifty. And I did not know that. Yeah, I I think I listened to like a financial advice show once years ago. And they kept referring to credit scores. And I was like, these people's credit scores aren't as good as they're saying they are. And I realized <laughs> later that we just have a different like metric. We're grading on a different curve here in Canada. 82% of American adults had a credit card in 2022. And credit card applications lead to this. And credit cards in general are leading to this constant data transfer between people and credit bureaus. Credit bureaus are supposed to play a role in fraud prevention. But at some point... Credit bureaus realized that they had this really valuable uh, trough of data and decided to uh, diversify its use, let's call it. Okay. They started selling off something called credit headers to other companies. Obviously, there's a lot of information they can't sell. Regulation prevents it. But the credit header, which typically contains a person's name, birth date, current and prior addresses, and social security number, Mm. uh, as well as their telephone number, are all part of this little packet of information that they are allowed to sell to third-party companies. So it's like the ultimate docs. It's like, yeah. not only do I have your name, number, and address, but I also have your credit score and your uh, social security. So it's like, if I'm going to steal your identity, I have the starter pack. Precisely. 
this information is purchasable cool. by other companies. Cool. Yeah, it's super cool and good. And basically, because this information is relatively, it's it's meaningfully less locked down than a lot of other information regarding your credit and financial history. It has become the like a big cybercrime spotlight has been shined on top of it. The reason we bring this up is because uh, 404 Media, which is this really cool new media operation started by a bunch of ex-Vice uh, tech reporters, broke this story about a Telegram bot in which you can purchase basically credit header information. 15 bucks uh, in Bitcoin with an extra option for the social security number at an extra $20 bill, you can purchase a person's information through this bot. Uh, based on pretty minimal input, typically their name and the state that they're operating in. I find it so funny that we spend so much time trying to protect a lot of this information, mm-hmm. and then you can just buy it online. Oh, completely. It's except it's also very, very difficult for. There's a lot of different tools that you can use, like consumer-facing tools for getting your information pulled off of different databases and stuff online. Products that will just reach out to them and get your stuff pulled. We've worked with them before in the show, and uh, credit. Headers are apparently one of the most difficult things to have pulled from these sites. Mm. Um, so there's a there's a, a service for accessing these called TLOXP. I'm not sure if that's how you actually pronounce it. It's capital TLO, lowercase XP. It's owned by TransUnion. Um, it is so popular for use among cyber criminals that the term to TLO someone has become a verb in online <laughs> hacking forums. TransUnion acknowledges that there has been unauthorized access, but they emphasize, obviously, that we're trying to stop this from happening. But it doesn't change the fact that like these credit headers have, they've sort of leached out into the community to the point that now that there are very easily accessible tools that with very little information, you can find a person's credit header information. Um, the sort of pilot project for some of these, or like the test case for some of these has been can we get Joe Rogan's social security number? Can we get Elon Musk's social security number? And the researchers were able to find this information on pretty much anybody you can think of. Right now, it looks like credit bureaus. If we're trying to trace this back to its source, it obviously arrives at credit bureaus. They're the ones who are selling off this little sliver of information to different people, and it's only as secure as the people they sell them to. I got news for you. Hit me. TLOXP has rebranded. Hmm. That's now called True, True Lookup. Oh, so it sounds honest. So the verb's gonna have to change. I'm gonna have to, to true, true somebody. Someone. You know what's funny is it probably won't. It'll probably keep being to TLO someone, and it, it, its meaning will just like fade into obscurity. Exactly. And then twenty years from now, somebody else on some other podcast will be like, "TLO, where did that start?" Totally. And they'll be like, "Well, in 2023, Jordan Blumen of Hacked Podcast did a." <laughs> So this is such an essential part of doxing people at this point. It sounds like that there is probably going to be some sort of a legal response to it. The Credit Fraud and Prevention Bureau is considering new rules and regulations for credit header data. Yeah. Like we've recognized that this is a problem and a vulnerability. Um, but this is these rule changes are still in their earliest stages, if anything is ever really realized. Because again, there's a lot of people making a ton of money selling these things. So there's going to be some pushback. Um but it is to say that this credit header data poses a significant privacy and security risk, and folks should know about it. Crazy. Interesting story. Yeah, it's a fascinating one. Well, worm GPT, fraud GPT, black hat, poker, cheating, and telegram 
credit score vending machine bots. Yeah, thanks again for everybody listening. And uh, you know, special thanks to all the patrons and people in the Discord and people that follow us on our yes. largely muted social media channels. We <laughs> will We appreciate you. Have an update on merch very soon. I know we've repetitively said that, but we are just in the process of waiting for some finals and soon. Soon. We have been we're stitching the t-shirts ourselves. That's why it's taking yes. so long. I've been screen printing hats in my bathroom. Yes. Covered in chemicals. It's just taken a long time. <laughs> so, so yeah, but but uh thanks for everything. We'll we'll see you guys soon and uh yeah, have a great couple of weeks until we see you again. Catch you in the next one.